0: How often do you think that the Christian life is a fight? Is, is fighting a, a big metaphor in your head of, of what you find the Christian life to be like? Because when you stop and think about it, a lot of the Bible is fighting, isn't it? Old Testament and New Testament, there's a lot of fighting talk. We fight against sin. And maybe that's an ongoing daily you know, presence for you. Like, no, it is a fight to say no to sin and yes to right. We fight against ourselves. We, we fight against the enemy, Satan, the spiritual battles. Again, you see they're all over the place in the New Testament, don't we? It's just the Christian life is a spiritual fight. And also we fight to advance the gospel. We don't fight with our fists or with bombs or with knives or guns or anything like that, but we fight to Take the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, to Balaam, to our workplace, to our, our colleagues, to our friends and our teams and all that sort of thing. Again and again and again and again, we're given biblical imagery to describe the Christian life in all sorts of different ways as a fight. The question is how, how certain is victory in the fight against sin, in the fight against Satan, in the fight to get the gospel out? How assured can we be? of victory in this fight. Well, what I want to share with us tonight is reasons to have great confidence in this fight. And the reason we should have confidence is because of the book of Joshua, uh, J- Judges, and 1 and 2 Samuel. So that's the sort of the, 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 the three books, four books, which you are going to be uh, covering tonight. Just by way of recap, let's try and fill in um, this box at the top of our, our handout. You might remember the last time we hit the book of Numbers, that's where we've left off. And what are God's people like at this stage? They're just about to enter the promised land. What are they like? Anyone remember? How would you describe God's people at this stage? Giant. They're giant. Yes, they're huge. They're no longer 12 people. They're no longer 72 people. They're a vast army. I think, what is it, a third of a million or fighting men? You know, And goodness knows how many women and children. They're, a, they're already an enormous nation of people. And again, we're thinking, yes, Abraham, God's promise to Abraham's keeping that bit. Uh, God's place, well, it's literally right in front of them. They're, they're on one side of the River Jordan, the north, never each shredded wheat, east side of uh, the river Jordan. They and so it's there, it's there in front of them. They're yet to take it, yeah. I still do that. Do you still and I'll still do the never eat shredded wheat? Um, it does help me. But so so the land is right there. The problem is the land is currently full of enemies. And we're going to come and think about it in a moment's time. So there's the land, it's literally just there, but it's full of their enemies. And God's presence, how is God's presence with his people? The tabernacle, absolutely right. And he's there with them in the tabernacle and, and also the various other means. Uh, we saw in his law, God gave his good law to his people. He also gave them various feasts and, and, and festivals to enjoy his presence, the Sabbath. Uh, lots of different ways that God's people were to uniquely amongst the nations enjoy their God. OK, let's launch in then. Let's launch in. Turn with me to the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter one. Joshua one. So we just finished Deuteronomy. And um, and really Joshua describes life at war. And you might remember in the previous book, in fact, let's not go to Joshua. Let's go to Deuteronomy 18. And there's a, there's a conundrum in Deuteronomy 18. Look at verse 15. Well, let me read verse 14, in fact. That's page 145. The nations you will dispossess, listen to those who practice sorcery or divination. But as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. The Lord, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses, from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. So the big question is, who is going to replace Moses? He dies at the end of Deuteronomy, Ah, but who, who's going to replace him? Who is going to replace him? And it seems that Joshua is the prophet who appears to fulfill that promise. Um, in, in chapter one, God gives him a, 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 a talking to, a, a, an encouraging talking to, to basically say to, to say what, what is expected of you as the leader. And it seems as if how that, that the success of the conquest of the land is not just tied to the, to Israel's obedience, it is specifically tied to how obedient Joshua, as their leader, will be. So look at chapter 1 and verse 7 of Joshua. God says to Joshua, be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law that my servant Moses gave to you. Do not turn from it from the right or the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. So Israel's success is not just tied to their obedience, it's tied to their obedience of their leader. But God says, be bold again and again. That's like the repeated message throughout Joshua. Hands up if Sunday school you sang, be bold, be strong, for the Lord your God is with you. Yeah. What a clap. We don't sing that anymore, do we? Classic. It's a great song. We should sing it. God is with you. And uh, to reassure Joshua of that, the Lord himself sends the captain of the Lord's army to speak to Joshua and say, look, you got your army, but I got my army. and Don't worry, we have got this in the bag. It's absolutely fine. So the beginning of Joshua begins with this massive reassurance to God's leader. We've got your back. We can't possibly lose this as long as you're faithful to me. God fights for you. And so we're not going to do a great detail going through Joshua because Joshua is basically one great battle after another. And I guess the big... Um, apologetics questions. You look at the book of Joshua and the question which many of our friends might raise is, well, hang on, how can you worship a God who justifies this war against an innocent people? That's often how it's termed, isn't it? How can your God justify genocide? That's often the charge uh, which is raised. I once saw a debate between um, a guy called um, Doug Wilson and um, and um, what's his face? Atheist guy. Richard Dawkins. Thank you. Um, and, and this was one of the points which Richard, Daw- Richard Dawkins raised. Look, how can you worship this God? So it's worth having some sort of answers up our sleeve. First thing to say is that this conquest of the land was forewarned. It was forewarned. It didn't come out of nowhere. In fact, if you turn back to Genesis chapter 15, it's mentioned literally hundreds and hundreds of years before. Genesis 15, verse 16. God says to Abraham, in the fourth generation after you, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. It seems if like God is patiently waiting, patiently giving the Amorites time. And in that time... The Amorites had time to turn back to the Lord. And the Amorites, obviously, they did, we know, hear about what happened in Egypt with the Exodus. They know about the Lord. The Lord's power has been publicized greatly. God is patiently extending this period of time. They were forewarned. But it's also fair to say the conquest was deserved. We don't have time to chase it up. But what we know of this people was that their practices were abhorrent. Absolutely awful. In their worship of Molech and Baal and Asherah, they practice really evil things. They, um, for example, would, would sacrifice their children into the arms of Molech, uh, the god. They, they would worship him in such regard. And, and in, in various other ways, that the evil of this land has come up before the Lord. It is right, he says, that there is judgment of them. But it's not just their evil practices. There's something else here which I think we often miss in our reading of Joshua. Uh, turn with me forward to chapter 11. And look at verse 21. So wasn't, they weren't just being destroyed because they were evil. There's, there's something else about them which is interesting. Chapter 11, verse 21. At that time, Joshua went and destroyed the Anakites from the hill country from Hebron, Debir and Anab and from all the hill country of Judah and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua totally destroyed them and their towns. No Anakites were left in the Israelite territory. Only in Gaza, Gath and Ashdod did anyone survive. There's, from your general knowledge, what we've seen in previous talk, what do we know about the Anakites, or Anak, the sons of Anak? Anything we remember about the Anakites? Nephilim? Yes, that's right. The Anakim, the Nephilim. They were giants, remember? They were the, the, um, the offspring of the sons of God who went into the daughters of men. They did that first time around in Genesis 6, which, which, um, which led to the flood. But then, we're told in Genesis 6, they did that before the flood, but also they did so afterwards. And this is describing them. You see, the, the, the people inhabiting this land—they weren't just wicked in their idolatrous practices; they were also, in, in the eyes of the author here, the, the offspring of Satan. You know, the offspring of the serpent. They, they were spirit. They were literally spiritually enemies of God. And notice where's the one place that these these uh, these people were left? Gath. Ashdod, Ashdod and Gaza. Anyone know anything significant about those places? Philistine territory. Philistine territory. Think of any famous Philistines. Goliath, who Goliath. was a giant. Do you, do you see? Very subtly, it's not like they're blaring it, but he's saying, "Look, the, the, the giant offspring of the Nephilim back in Genesis six. Well, here they are. They need to be wiped out. They are God's enemies. It is deserved." It's also necessary, and we've seen this elsewhere, that if, if, if God's people allow these enemies to still uh, live in the land, it, it's much like Adam and Eve allowing the serpent into the garden. These, these peoples in the territory will tempt them to worship their gods, will tempt them to follow their practices. It's, it's a risk if they're not destroyed, that they would lead God's people away from the Lord. And lastly, it's not genocide because it has absolutely nothing to do with ethnicity. And, and, and the famous, famous example of this is what happens with, um, with Jericho. I love this image, by the way. This was the cover of a comic book in the 1950s, a Christian comic book. And I think it's absolutely brilliant artwork, isn't it? Um, you see God's people marching around the walls of Jericho and, and, and then the as the they all sort of go collapsing in. But you might remember before they go march around the walls of Jericho, they send a couple of spies in. And they meet Rahab, a prostitute, and she's there in the, in, in, in the, in, in the city walls. And, um, and, she, and she is told, because she, um, she believed that the, the Lord, she heard of the Lord and, and his victories against, against Egypt, she trusted in him, she wanted to switch sides. And they're like, yeah, fine, leave a, a, a scarlet cord in your window, you will be safe. And of course, her, um, she was safe. And remarkably, when they dug up Jericho, there's only one bit of wall which didn't fall down. Probably her, her bedroom window. Isn't that cool? Um, and so it's got absolutely nothing uh, to do um, with, uh, um, with people's ethnicity. So what does the, the book of Joshua, Joshua teach us again and again and again? It teaches us that God is holy. We can't forget this. Um, we can't forget that, that God's standards of holiness, they haven't changed between Old and New Testament. God is holy and is vengeful against those who deny his holiness. We've got to then remember that judgment is real. And if we're offended by the idea of the conquests, well, all the more we should be offended by what Jesus teaches about hell, which is an even greater uh, purge of God's enemies. Um, God's justice is real. And as bad as this judgment is, hell is worse. But the most remarkable thing is, um, is, is that anyone can join God's people, and much like Rahab. Anyone can join. Anyone can join in. In fact, Rahab, you might know, makes it into Jesus' own genealogy in, in Matthew chapter 1. Uh, the, 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 Jesus' arms, God's arms are wide open to accept anyone, no matter who we are. So it's fair to say that the, 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 the conquest of Canaan is, is not a problem for the atheist. Um, world history is full of uh, violent violence and, and wars and things like that. We should expect that in a world. Uh, it, but, but, but I, so, so it's not really, in our know, apologetics, we say, why is this a problem for the, for the non-Christian? It's not. It's only a problem for the Christian. and For us to try and understand how can a holy God uh, do this? And, and the answer is, of course, God hasn't changed between Old and New Testament. God is still holy, uh, but he's still merciful. Okay, so at the, of of, um, the end of Book of Joshua, they, they've, they've done the conquest of most of the land. And at the end of Book of Joshua, God uh, gathers his people uh, together. I'm going to do a bit of pairs work now. I'm going to read uh, chapter 23, verses 1 to 13. And uh, I want you to discuss in your pairs or your threes where you are. Um, what jumps out at you in terms of the covenants? What covenants can you see at play in these verses? Joshua 23. After a long time had passed and the Lord had given Israel rest from all their enemies around them, Joshua, by then a very old man, summoned all Israel their elders leaders judges officials and he said to them i'm very old you yourselves have seen everything the lord your god has done to all these nations for your sake it was the lord your god who fought for you remember how i have allotted as an inheritance for your tribes all the land of the nations that remain the nations i conquered between the jordan and the mediterranean sea in the west the lord your god himself will push them out for your sake he will drive them out before you and will take possession of the land as the Lord your God promised you. Be very strong. Be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or the left. Do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them, but you are to hold fast to the Lord your God as you have until now. The Lord has driven out before you great and powerful enemies. To this day, no one has been able to withstand you. One of you routs a thousand because the Lord your God fights for you just as he promised. So be very careful to love the Lord your God. But if you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of the nations that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, there will become snares and traps for you, whips on your backs and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from this good ground which the Lord your God has given you. Brilliant. Into pairs, twos or threes. Any covenant language, which covenants are popping up here as, uh, as you read them? So again, let's shout out, what, what, what are some of the themes we're seeing here? Which covenants are, are popping up in the language used here? How does it, let's try and go through it in order. What, what, what sort of, what's the themes to begin with? Absolutely brilliant, brilliant. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah, the, the Abrahamic covenant, there is a land, it's here, it's yours, it's going to be yours because I promised you, it's, it's certain, it's determined because of Abraham's initial obedience. Do you remember that? Absolutely right. And anything else there? It's brilliant it's, yes the word rest shalom yes God has given them peace rest because of their surrounding enemies that's absolutely right that's a that's a really good pickup so yes so it's like a, that God is we saw this you know God, God saves his people to enjoy rest but they can only have rest if, if the enemies are destroyed if, if, uh, if chaos is um, is removed and order comes in that's a good pickup I like that yes okay so God's promised through the Abraham coming they're gonna have a land but what's what's the what's the what's the tension Absolutely right. It, it seems if their ability to, to stay in this land is contingent on whether or not they keep this law. And in particular, whether or not they drive out the serpents out of the land, which, again, sounds very like the, the Adamic covenant initially. There any other hints of the Adamic covenant you see here? Yes. Yeah. The thorns in your eyes perish from this good ground, which the Lord had God has given you. Yeah, it's it's very reminiscent, isn't it? It's very familiar, and deliberately so. So I hope you see there's a tension here. God has promised, you're going to get the land, but to keep the land, you've got to obey. And the question is, well, how? How are you going to do that? Well, in, in chapter 24, um, you can see the heading there, Covenant Renewed at Shechem. You see from this map, Shechem's a really significant place. Notice where Shechem is. Smack bang between two mountains. Um, Mount Gerizim. And Mount Ebal. Do you Remember, the, what's significant about those two mountains? I remember. And remember? Blessings and curses. That's right. Um, in Deuteronomy, Moses said, when he hit the land, this is what you should do. Half you should camp on one mountain. Uh, other, should, other six tribes camp on the other mountain. And I want you guys to shout the blessings and shout the curses at each other. It <laughs> Basically, they say, which one do you want to do? And in chapter 24, Mo, um, Joshua gives this cracking it's a farewell speech. By the way, most of the best speeches in the Bible happen just before people die, okay? And Joshua 24 is just a really rousing, standing in your chair, sort of fist in the air sort of speech. And Joshua basically says, you know, choose this day whom you're going to serve. Here we are between these two mountains. What's it going to be? Curse or blessing? Choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Woo! And you can imagine everyone sort of cheering, cheering with them. But then sort of Joshua screws up his speech in verse 16. Uh, just look at verse 16. It sort of just kind of lets the air out of it a little bit. Then the people answered. Uh, he basically, Joshua said, who are you going to serve? And the people on verse 16 Far be it from us to forsake the Lord and serve other gods. It was the Lord our God Himself who brought us out of the, the our parents out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on the entire journey and among all the nations through which we travelled, and the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because He is our God. Joshua said to the people, "Yeah, you're not you're not able to serve the Lord." He's a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve other foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after all he's been good to you. But the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said, you are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen to serve the Lord. So extraordinary, isn't it? Moses says, no, you're not really able to. You're not able to. Huh. Same note of pessimism, <laughs> sort of like, "Here's the land, but you 've got to obey the Lord. To keep it, and you can't do it." Uh, how's it going to work? How's it going to play out? What happens next? Well let's hit the book of, uh, let's hit the book of, uh, of, uh, of judges. And in, in judges, we see uh, the same thing happen over and over and over again, this same sixfold uh, cycle. Um, because, of course, we know what happens. Of course, Israel broke the law. Of course, they failed to obey him. And so what happens? Initially, they reject God. Uh, their react, God's reaction to that is to then hand them over uh, uh, to, the, uh, to their enemies, hand them over to, to their sin, hand them over to their idolatry. Uh, God's people then suffer for a while under that enemy um, and they repent. They cry out to the Lord again, who then sends them a rescuer, a judge to rescue them. And that was, it's good for a little bit. And then they relapse again and the whole sorry cycle goes round and round and round again. It's a very repetitive book, uh, the book of Judges, but a gripping read. If you want to know where to start reading the Bible with a five-year-old boy, Judges. Absolutely. It's brilliant. My um, kids love it. Um, you just might need to edit on the fly. Um, some, some quite, yeah, grizzly bits. Um, but the funny thing about each of these judges is that they, they kind of hold up a black mirror to Israel because they're all completely flawed uh, to, to, to a man. All of them are, are, are flawed uh, leaders, are flawed rescuers. They, they, they reveal something what Israel are like. To that extent, they're a bit like Batman. You, know, you might remember the end of um, the film The Dark Knight um, where, it said, uh, where Commissioner Gordon says of him, uh, he's the hero Gotham deserves, but not the one it needs. Um, and that, that's true of, of all the judges, um, because they, they, uh, all these leaders are flawed. They're all rescuers are flawed. And let me give you an example. Samson is a really famous e- e- example. We could talk about Ehud, the left-handed judge. We could talk about Deborah. Uh, we could, but but let's, let's talk about Samson, because it's the most vivid, and he's probably amongst the most famous. Um, so if, but Samson's story is, in himself, a little microcosm of Israel's story. So um, we get a whole chapter devoted to Samson's miraculous birth. His parents are elderly. They can't have kids. An angel comes and announces his birth. He's told to be raised up in a, in a special way. He, this, this child's going to be special. Um, holiness is expected of this child. He's to have, have a special vow, never to cut his hair. And, and because of this special vow, um, Samson is given amazing privileges, like this enormous um, supernatural strength. Here he is wrestling a, a lion, naked, apparently. And um, it, that's what he liked to do. And, and here he is smashing up a whole bunch of uh, Philistines with an, with an ox's jaw. Who needs a sword when he got an ox jaw? He's ridiculous. He's Superman. You know, he can beat up anyone. He's got these enormous spiritual privileges. And yet what happens to Samson? Much like Israel, he gets ensnared by foreign women. Delilah. He, he he lets down his guard with Delilah, and famously, you know, she um, she she discovered the secret of his strength. Uh, she he, she she cut off his hair. Here, she loved this painting. You know, w- w- waving his shaved head uh, at, uh, at at Samson, and a look of betrayal in his eyes. Isn't that a fantastic painting. Um, and, uh, and of course, what, what happens to Samson, oh, here he is in his uh, impressionistic, not impressionistic, surrealistic uh, take on the same event. Um, but, but, here, but what happens, of course, uh, Samson, uh, in, in his death, manages to rescue Israel because all of, the, all of the enemies are gathered in one place. And he managed to kill them all, uh, defeating them and their gods. So you see, Samson's story reflects Israel's story. Great privileges, necessary obedience. Fails, um, but then in the end brings, uh, brings success. And also he points to Jesus in his birth, miraculous birth, in his life, extraordinary strength. But unlike um, Samson, unlike Jesus, uh, Samson was unfaithful. Jesus was faithful. And in Jesus' death, he brings salvation uh, to all. Uh, so many great stories in the book of Judges. I think that's just one of, one of my favourites. The end of the book of Judges is probably less well-known. Chapter 17 to 24. Sorry, 17 to 22. Um, and it's arguably some of the darkest pages in all the scripture. I definitely wouldn't read these chapters to my five-year-old boy because they are really grim. Really grim. Uh, nothing good happens. Um, the, basically, the, the big plot is that there's a Levite. You know, the Levites were the holiest of God's people. And this Levite had a concubine. Huh, not a great start. But this uh, concubine uh, gets gang-raped by a whole bunch of Benjaminites. And the, the Levite is distraught that his concubine has got gang-raped by, by these Benjamites, this other tribe. And so what does he do? He uh, mutilates the corpse of this woman, cuts her into 12 pieces, and then posts one piece of her to each tribe of Israel, calling all of them for war against the benjaminites and so civil war erupts and it's all the cracks all the cracks you remember the cracks which we talked about before between the different tribes they, they were there in the book of genesis between the brothers they continued all the way through they've, they've always been there but but now these cracks turn into fissures and all hell breaks loose it's awful and so the, the last few chapters of the book of judges the same note keeps on coming up look at chapter 18 and verse 1 In those days, Israel had no king. Chapter 19, verse 1. In those days, Israel had no king. Uh, chapter 21, verse 25 says, In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Israel needed a king. The only way they're ever going to keep this land is if they have a godly king who's going to lead them in that holy obedience, much like Joshua was supposed to, and much like Joshua did, but they need a king like that. These black mirrors, these, these um, Gotham Knights, they're not enough. We need a king. Meanwhile, all the while, through this dark, dark period of history, God is preparing a king. And so enters the book of Ruth. Uh, we read about an obscure, foreign uh, Moabite woman uh, who decides to care for her Israelite mother-in-law, her Naomi. And uh, you might know the story. She ends up being redeemed, even though she's pretty much unmarriable. She ends up being redeemed uh, by uh, this uh, man called Boaz, who's from the tribe of Judah. And at the end of the book of Ruth, if you flip over there, we're given a little family tree. Chapter four, and we follow down from the line of Perez all the way through, through Boaz, verse 21, Boaz, the father of Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of David. God has not forgotten his promises. Way back in the book of Genesis, chapter 17, God promised Abraham, kings are going to come from you. Uh, chapter tw- uh, 49, God promises from Judah, king is going to come from you. And now God is going to deliver on that promise because, boy, do God's people need a king. All righty, let's come together there. Any, any any questions thus far? I'm aware we're going fast uh, through through Joshua, Judges and Ruth. That's a really good comment. So Jane made a comment like, what you know, let me turn it into a questions um, for the recording. Um, so, w- w- why why do we why do we give uh, Rahab uh, the moniker the prostitute? Why not Rahab the faithful woman? Um, I I think that's that's a really good point because of course I don't want to be going around about. Let, let's say I used to be a bank robber. I don't as, and then I turned to Christ in prison and then came. I I shouldn't still call myself Andy the bank robber you're like I hope you're not <laughs> you know you're sort of like I've I've now turned in fact what we know of Rahab is that she ends up marrying into the into the line of Judah and she's part of Jesus' family tree so she gets she gets married you know someone married her despite knowing her past so and and she's given a new identity and and that that is her I, I and yet the bible is clear she I think it's it book of James uh, it tells us uh, she was a prostitute um and so it is it is worthwhile knowing that so that we know that the breadth of God's love, even if that's not her identifying marker anymore. So I take your challenge. I think you're absolutely right. And I, sh- I think Agogo's point is excellent. We shouldn't call her Rahab the Prostitute. We should call her Rahab the Faithful, who used to be a prostitute, but is in Christ a faithful woman. How's that? Is that better? Good challenge. Love it. How should, so how should we think about the geographical area you know, of the Promised Land Now, and this is a huge contentious question, isn't it? And I'm going to be a very unsatisfactory brief answer. Um, and, um, and it's fair to say that that this is partly why we're doing a Bible overview, um, because the answer to this question kind of depends how you see the whole sweep of the Bible. It's not enough to just look at one isolated text and go, aha, uh, this is why X, Y, Z. It, we need to see the whole sweep of the argument. And so some Bible-believing Christians uh, would say that the promises to Abraham are, are still uh, there for the, the, the ethnic Israel, uh, nation of Israel, and they're hoping that there's a time when all, when the, the nation of Israel will, will come to uh, know Christ and, and that land, again, will have its significance and the temple will be, be rebuilt and then the Lord Jesus will return. And, and they're expecting a certain series of events to happen. And, so, and, and this understanding, often called dispensationalism, this understanding of the Bible story has really had a huge impact on geopolitics um, and particularly American foreign policy, and um, I would argue not. I, I would argue it's very difficult to justify that biblically. So I'm nervous of using the Bible to justify um, a preferential treatment of Israel um, for, for, in, in, in the Promised Land. Um, there might be good uh, political reasons uh, for doing so. And um, I don't know enough a bit to say anything sensible about it, um, so I won't. But I'm saying you can't do that using theological arguments. Um, and the reason for that is because Jesus says really clearly, my kingdom is not of this world. I think that's pretty clear. And when the temple was destroyed in AD 70, I, I think the main significance of the land, i.e. that God symbolically dwells there in his temple, is, is, is gone um, because the, God is now with his people in his church and, and, and in us by his Holy Spirit. So all we don't need the visual aid anymore because we have Christ. Um, so personally, I don't see any theological reason um, for the ongoing significance of the land. A few niggles there, though. Um, Jesus says that he won't return until um, the gospel is preached in every village of Israel. Okay, So there seems to be some evangelistic link to that geographical area. Um, and, uh, and so my, my, my friends who, uh, w- w- who wouldn't quite land as heavily as I do would, would remind me of that, and, and that's interesting, isn't it? So we need to make some sense of that. So um, we as a church, you might know, support Jews for Jesus. Um, we, we give uh, a gift to them because we want to see Jewish people, one, for Christ, um, but the Jewish people are, are spread across the world. They're not just in one place, and they're not just in Israel. So personally, I don't see any theological reason for the ongoing significance of that land to the nation of Israel. But that's is not to say they shouldn't, they shouldn't have the right to self-determination. There might be good political reasons why they, why they should be there, but I'm just not wading in on that. How's that as a headline? Is that fair? Cool. Maybe chat more about that in the pub with someone who knows more about politics. <laughs> Brilliant. Anyone else? Good. Excellent. Uh, let's move on then. Life in the kingdom. And it's fair to say that as we begin into the, the book of 1 Samuel, the period of the judges continues to be pretty awful. Uh, there's continued chaos as um, the sons of Eli are, are the judges and, and they're pretty awful. God puts them to death because they're just doing a terrible job of, of governing God's people. And so in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, God's people make a really good Request. They eventually realize, hang on, this judge's lark is rubbish, isn't it? And make a good request. But they ask for all the wrong reasons. Let me read from chapter 8, verse 1. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. And they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside off the dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So again, period of judges, still rubbish. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you're old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Now this is complicated. This is a good request, isn't it? The whole point of the book of Judges is that we need a king. We need a king. We need a king. And eventually they're saying, we need a king. We're going, yes, of course you do. But their motive is bad. We want a king so we can be like all the other nations. No, the whole point is that we're unlike the other nations, but they want to be like the other nations. They want a king like the other nations. They, they don't believe that they can win in battles in war unless they have a king like the other nations. They all have kings. That's why we keep on getting smashed, because they all have kings. They're being stupid. They have the Lord, their God. They don't need a king to win in battle. They just need to be faithful. So it's a good request with a terrible motive. And so God hands them over to what they want. They want a king like the nations. So God decides to give them a king like the nations. And so he gives them Saul. Saul, this very impressive man. and he, We're told he is literally a foot taller than any other man in Israel. Okay, This guy is huge. He's a giant. You can understand why they want him for their king, because they're trying to fight off the Philistines, who were, ding, 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 giants. Right? Oh, let's take our own giant as king. But from the word go, Saul is a massive crushing disappointment. From, from the day of his coronation, when he's hiding amongst the baggage, because <laughs> he didn't want to be crowned, um, to, to, his, um, trying to his various failures to fight, face off uh, against the Philistines and his evasion in, in fighting them in war. He's unimpressive again and again and again. He can't take out the Philistines because he's not, a, he's not faithful to God. But also the other thing we see about Saul is that he is a king like the nations. He takes and he takes and he takes. He takes their, Israel's gold, he takes Israel's women, he taxes them to high heaven, and he's a terrible king. He's a king much like what Jesus warned us about in our reading this morning, a king like, who, who lords it over um, God's people. Meanwhile, we, in the background, we follow the, the story of another man, David, and uh, we're told of him that he's completely unlike Saul. It, the first time we meet him, he's, uh, quote, ruddy, young, handsome, and uh, short. So I like to think of myself as a bit of a David, you, you know, sort of. He, he, David was not a foot taller than Erosimir. He's a short chap, young chap, you know, ruddy, unimpressive, and yet God looks at him and God says, "This this man is after my own heart." And and David does whilst David, whilst Saul is king, David does what Saul cannot. David defeats the Philistines, and of course we all know the story, don't we, of young boy David taking on Goliath from the sons of Anak uh, in Gath. Uh, David can beat Goliath. David can kick out the Nephilim and he does it despite his weakness. No, God uses his weakness to do great things. And so from then on, there's this tension between Saul and David. Saul is king uh, but David's really the king person who should be king. I and mean, everyone looks to David as their military leader and everyone sings songs about David and everyone thinks David's brilliant. And Saul gets really angry because I'll sings these songs about him and he starts hating David. Uh, to begin with, he gets in close. He marries off his daughter to David, keep your enemies close. Uh, but then uh, he starts hunting him down but even, it's, even Jonathan, Saul's own son, uh, takes up alliance with David and betrays Saul um, uh, to, to, to David. And, and David is shown faithful again and again and again. So it's throughout this tension, you've got David, apparent weakness versus Saul, apparent power. And yet we're seeing which one is the real king and which one is the Antichrist. Um, so here is the, David being anointed, his David statue, sorry, I forgot about this. I love, you can find so many great paintings of David slaying Goliath, so many, this is one of my favourites, look at that, he's looking up to the Lord and he's thanking the Lord because it's the Lord who, um, who, who won the victory and I love this one too, we went around we an art gallery in, uh, in, in um, what was it, in Tuscany two years ago and, and, and Caleb chose this as the postcard to take home, <laughs> of course he did, <laughs> yeah, brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Um, uh, you know David, David playing the harp and Saul throwing spirit at him. And but in the end, of course, we all know uh, Saul dies. Uh, Saul is about to face off against the Philistines. The Lord does not go with him. Saul is terrified about this, and so what does Saul do? He goes seeks out a, a medium, at a place called Endor. He, he he does divination, something that the wicked pagans of the land do. And uh, and God hands him over uh, to his death. Saul dies. But God's king prevails. And in the space of, of two chapters, David does what Saul couldn't do throughout his whole lifetime. He achieves the impossible. So turn with me to 2 Samuel, chapter 5. And let's fill in this box. God's people, God's place, God's presence. What is, what is David? He's just become king. There's a little bit of... Um, little bit of uh, unsettled uh, nature before he gets to the throne, but we'll skip over that. Um, but what do we learn about God's people? We'll look at chapter 5 and verse 12. Then David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and, and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. So David manages to, to unite all the 12 warring tribes under one single kingdom and the Lord is with them. Um, chapter 5, verse 17. What about God's place? Well, when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they went up in full force in search of him. But David heard about it and went down to his stronghold. I think I'm in the wrong book. Am I in the wrong book? No, maybe not. Oh, no, no, carry on. Now, the Philistines had come to spread out in the valley of Rephaim. Rephaim, remember the valley of giants. So David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up and attack the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hands? the Lord answered, go, for I will surely deliver the Philistines into your hands. And so they did. David manages to, to completely wipe out the serpents off out of the garden. He managed to secure God's place and bring ultimate rest to God's people because the enemies are defeated. And then in chapter six, as this painting indicates, David then manages to bring the Ark of the Covenant to his new capital, this place called Jerusalem. And that is where it rests. God's presence is no longer um, on the move. It is now settled in a place. And that's where it is. And it's only after God, uh, David does all these amazing things, uniting God's people, defeating the enemies, bringing the ark into God's presence, uh, into God's place. It's only then that God decides to make a covenant with David. And it's very significant, just like Noah and Abraham and Levi. It's David's heroic obedience which triggers this covenant. So look with me at chapter seven and verse eight. Let me read this and then we'll go into groups for a minute. I'll try and work out the terms of this covenant. Chapter seven, verse eight. Now then, tell my servant David, David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock and appointed you as ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I'll make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I'll provide a place for my people Israel and I'll plant them so that they can have a home in their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people shall not oppress them anymore as they did in the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I'll establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. And when he does wrong, I'll punish him with a rod wielded by men with floggings and flitted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Brilliant. What are the terms of this covenant? Why not turn to the people next to you and uh, chat amongst yourselves for a moment. What, what jumps out at you here? What are the terms of this covenant? Again, what, what, what covenant language jumps out of us here? What, 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 um, anything you want to share from your groups, your pairs? What are the, what are the terms of this covenant? Brilliant. Absolutely. And named, remember that, first being given to Abraham, the promise of, I will make your name great. We're thinking, ding, 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 oh, Abrahamic covenant. Uh, uh, Shem, the Shemite people, Meaning name, yeah, absolutely right. What's the other thing? Sorry, Joey. Brilliant place again, Abrahamic and and rest from the and, and rest is really what God's people have been gagging for, isn't it? Uh, throughout throughout the last couple of hundred years, um, after a terrible uh, series of leadership, yeah, absolutely right. Um, so, anything else? Any other thing else on the terms here? It's so important, isn't it, that that we recognise this is what we've called a, a royal grant covenant, a, a, an inherited reward. Um, we're in by the obedience of David. You know the past. Have you noticed that pattern? By the way, just just look at this diagram um, here. It's on your handouts as well. Remember, remember Noah's extraordinary obedience uh, and Abraham's extraordinary obedience in, in the battle of the five armies uh, and the Leviticus. Uh, Phineas his obedience and now David his. obedience. It's, it's these great heroic acts which lead to the triggering of this covenant. But but then it's all one-sided. It's God saying, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And Morgan's absolutely right. He, uh, God here does make mention of um, what, what will happen if his offspring disobeys, but it, it's framed as discipline rather than curse. Uh, floggings, uh, we, we're told. Um, and uh, so, so there's, uh, it's, it's extraordinary, this, isn't it? Um, God is uh, promising uh, to bless uh, God's people with a perpetual king, perpetual king, there'll always be a king um, because uh, of David's uh, obedience. And, and our diagram is now complete, by the way. Um, you may have noticed on, on, our, on our form. This is that before we hit the new covenant, uh, which we've looked at prefigured already, uh, this is the last covenant in, in the Old Testament. And, and, and the rest of the, sort of the Bible story just plays out, um, that the covenants uh, which, which we've seen already. But verse 15, my love will never be taken away from him. No curses, it's his only blessing because of David's obedience, because of the king. It can't be nullified. And that's very good news because we're going to see very soon how it really probably should be nullified if the terms are slightly different. But it's not. OK, so the, the, the big question is, who is this promised seed? Um, God said, you know, who is this offspring? Um, I'll raise up your offspring to succeed you and I'll establish his kingdom forever and ever. Who, who is this offspring? Well, initially, it might look like David. Is it David? I mean, David is pretty awesome, isn't he, of all, all the things he achieves. But then uh, flip over the page to, uh, to chapter 11, and we read about the famous accounts of Bathsheba, um, with whom David uh, has commits adultery. He should be out to war with his men, but here he is, um, He's, you can see all these soldiers marching out to war, but David's at home on the rooftops, and he's he's noticing uh, this beautiful. Uh, I think she doesn't look very beautiful in this image, but but uh, you know, a beautiful woman um, from um, uh, on uh, bathing on, on the rooftops, and so, and she um, he sleeps with her, whether whether or not against her will, we we're not we're not told, uh, but then she falls pregnant. Uh, and then he calls his her husband back off the lines to try and sleep with her. He refuses to out of loyalty to his men. Uh, so David puts him on the front lines to die. And then David marries her. Uh, I think how many of the commandments he manages to break in order to cover up his own sin. Uh, David should have fallen under God's judgment and wrath. He should have fallen under God's curse. Um, but the rest of 2 Samuel sort of details the damage done by David's sin. It, it leads to a civil war, again, another civil war, uh, and, and so on and, and so forth. And yet God's promise to David and his offspring remains. And so we think, well, who is the promised offspring then, whose kingdom will never end? Well, it must be Solomon then. And so the book of 1 Kings begin, be, begins, if you, uh, turn to 1 Kings with me. And uh, what we read about Solomon here is that he's an immensely uh, wise king and... Um, and Solomon manages to achieve more than David in many respects. So look at chapter 4 of 1 Kings. What we we'll read of God's people here is we fill in the box. The people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand of the seashore. They ate, they drank, and were happy. That's pretty good, isn't it? What does that remind you of? Yeah, they ate and drank. It does sound like edemic. Any, any other language there? Some, yeah, sand and the seashore, the Abrahamic covenant, of course. Yeah, G20, is that sorry, Genesis 17 <coughs> is that? Um, and what, the next verse, uh, verse 21, what do we read about God's place? And Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river Euphrates to the land of the Philistines, as far as the border of Egypt. These countries brought tribute and were Solomon's subjects all his life. That is enormous. That is absolutely enormous. Uh, the, the, the scale, the extent of Solomon's kingdom. It is huge. God's land, Eden, is extended outwards and outwards and outwards. And God's presence, well, as you look down chapters 5 through to 9, uh, Solomon uh, decides to build the temple. And here you see in this, um, uh, this engraving, you see Solomon there pouring over the designs of, of the temple. And uh, the, the temple was very, very impressive architecture. Um, here's, a, here's a scale model. Um, you can see everything's covered in gold because uh, it's God's royal house. Uh, inside, everything's inlaid with gold. And you notice there the detailing. Um, you see that the trees, the pomegranates, what does that remind you of? Eden, exactly right. The seraphim on the walls, Eden. And the lamp stands that they're a stylized tree of life, Eden. And at the heart of it is the holy of holies, guarded by two enormous seraphim, uh, where the Ark of the Covenant is. Um, so, so we think, oh wow, this is amazing. Uh, Solomon must be the king. He must be the promised offspring. And in chapter ten, if you look uh, if you turn there. It gets even better for Solomon because we read of a, of, a, of, a, of a visit from the Queen of Sheba. And why is it significant that, that, that the nations are now coming in? And, and she notices, uh, she notices, here, here's a Solomon's wisdom. She notices the beauty of his court and all the clothes people are wearing. And she's amazed. Why is this significant? Because now we see the nations being drawn in magnetically to join God's people. And again, the Abrahamic covenant. And God's initial promise uh, that, that, his, uh, that his blessings would extend out was to the ends of the earth. If only the Bible ended on chapter, 1 Kings chapter 10. <laughs> that ends really great at this point. Um, but we're going to see next week. Uh, the Queen of Sheba wasn't Solomon's only wife. Far from it. And in fact, that was the beginning of his downfall. So turn over the page. Who is this long-promised offspring? Well, spoiler alert, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. Turn with me to Luke chapter 1, verse 29. And Luke begins his account by underlining the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7, the, uh, the Davidic covenant. Chapter 1, verse 29. Mary was greatly troubled at the angel's words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. By the way, Jesus and Joshua are the same name. It means, he, he, uh, it means Yahweh saves. You'll call him Joshua, Jesus. He'll be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Jesus is the fulfilment of the Davidic covenant. Okay then, as we draw to a close, just some lines of application for us. Why, why should you care about the Davidic covenant? First thing we've got to remember, of course, everyone is ruled by someone or something. The question is not, are you ruled? Are you being ruled? The question is, what or who is ruling you? Um, because everyone is ruled by someone or something, and if that someone or something is not the Lord God, is not the Lord Jesus Christ, that someone or something is going to be like Saul. It's going to promise a lot, but it's going to take, it's going to take, and it's going to take. And Jesus asks, us, no one. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. So who who serves you really? Who is really your master? Does your ruler take, 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 or like the Lord Jesus Christ, does he give? Give, give. Does he, has he come to serve? There's a lovely line in 1 Peter 3, verse 15, where Peter says, "In your heart, set apart Christ as Lord." Um, we need to go out this week in our, and, and, and like, click our hearts to Jesus' is Lord mode. because the reason we need to do that is because often our default mode is, "My boss is Lord. I must do what he says. Or um, my libido is Lord, must do what it says. Or my, my bank account is Lord, must, do, must obey what it says. We, we, we said, no, set your heart to say Christ is Lord. Set apart Christ as Lord, and that'll transform the way we live. Um, we are ruled by someone or something. All of us have a king. But is your king a good king or, or a false king? And the proof is in the fruit. Often, our, our ruders, often the ruders, people put over themselves, are horrendous. And, and we see that around us, don't we? We'll have friends who are, who are serving things which are destroying them. And you're just saying to them, why are you doing this to yourself? We can say, we have a better king. We have a king who gives. Uh, take upon, he says, uh, come to me all who are weary and burden, And I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. It is light, it is easy. Jesus is a king. He does have a yoke to bear upon us, but he's lighter than any other yoke of any other king. The, only, the other thing to, to recognise here is that our king blessing, uh, mediates every single blessing to us. Um, so just we saw this in Israel, didn't we? How um, success for Israel depended on Joshua, their king, functionally their king, their, their ruler, or, or their judges, Samson. Or was it David or Solomon? So the people of Israel, kind of, as soon as the leaders arrive, they kind of move to the back. And, and it's the leaders who kind of take the, the narrative front, front scene, don't they? And they mediate every single blessing to God's people. Victory over God's enemies. And so it is with us. Our king mediates victory for us over sin, over Satan, over death. And so that, that cycle, which we saw earlier in, in, in Judges, that that is not your story. Your story is not the cycle of repentance and falling back into sin, repentance and falling back into sin. Jesus broke that cycle because he is the forever faithful king. He has mediated victory forever for you over your sin. So now you do not need to offer your bodies to sin anymore. Uh, he has promised us victory as we get the gospel out. He has promised us this so we can be bold. He has mediated every blessing to us. He has promised us an end to chaos, a beginning of peace. He also mediates intimacy of God's presence. Uh, we are his temple. Here we are. We're gathered here tonight. His spirit is with us. Just as Solomon built the temple to be amongst his people, so the Lord Jesus Christ built the church that we might be uh, in God's presence always. He mediates God's presence with us. He also mediates um, unity amongst God, us. and We're all pretty different here today, lots of different ways. And just as the tribes of Israel are all very different, the king united them and the king unites us even now. A king mediates every blessing to us. And if you want a little demonstration of that, I recommend those psalms. We can't turn to them now, but Psalm 132, 134, it's like a set of three psalms of ascent. And there's songs about how the king does absolutely everything for the people. It's not about you. It's about your king. So it comes back again, who do you serve? And, and lastly, and we saw this this morning, our king sets our pattern of leadership. Um, in Mark 10, what sort of leaders will the disciples be? Well, it depends on who they want to follow. Jesus says, you don't follow a king like the nations who take and take and take. You follow a servant king, which means your leaders should be servant leaders. And those are the sort of people you should follow. And if you aspire to leadership, it's service to which you are called. It's a good remember, reminder for me. Tenth person next to you, let's have a bit of Q&A. Hopefully that some, some questions, some good questions for us. Brilliant. Excellent question. Thank you very, very much. So the question there to some servers, oh, hang on, if, if the fulfillment of this passage is Jesus, what on earth does it mean when, Jesus, when God says, um, when he does wrongs, I will, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men with floggings inflicted by human hands? Well, how, how does that work? Because Jesus didn't do wrong. We know that's you know, it's sort of 101 in the Gospels, isn't it? Jesus didn't sin. Um, and here we have the funny thing about about biblical prophecy is that um, often there's an, an immediate fulfilment, but, but then an ultimate fulfilment. And, and there's different um, vistas to it, uh, different sort of... It's the illustration, is, which is often used, which, which I gather is useful, but I, if you're into mountaineering, apparently it makes sense. I've never really climbed mountains, so it doesn't make any sense to me. But I share it with you, in case you have climbed a mountain, and it, it is useful. Um, but apparently, when, you climb, uh, when you're climbing mountains, you think you've reached a peak, and, and you hit the peak and you realise it's not the peak. And there's another peak to go. And um, is that a thing? Not. Okay, yes, this is useful illustration. I should get out more. And, um, and uh, it's like that. You sort of like, we initially, we we're reading uh, to Samuel 7. We're thinking, oh, it must be talking about one of uh, Solomon. It must be talking about Solomon. And when Solomon does wrong, he'll be flogged from many flogs. But God won't take his love away from him. And that is, that is definitely true of Solomon, isn't it? He did do wrong, as we're going to see next week, and yet God didn't sort of um, throw him under the bus. Um, so, so the question is, well, how is that then true of Jesus? If it's a different vista? Well, of course, weirdly, Jesus was flogged and he was beaten with blows by the hands of men. But not because of his sin, but because of his people's sin. So I think Jesus does fulfill this but in a, in a flipped over way. Um, so, yeah, so it's a bit of it's, it's, it's both and. Yeah, and that's the fun thing about biblical, biblical prophecy. You can kind of see the historic, immediate fulfillment and then the future fulfillment. Yeah, great question. So um, it says uh, God will never take his love away from his son, yet didn't God take his love away from Jesus on the cross? Huh, okay. So to answer this question, we need to go into the, 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 the technicalities of what happened on the cross. So no, I don't think God ever took his love uh, God the Father never took his love away from the Son. Rather, uh, God poured out his wrath upon the human nature of the Son. And it says it's important to distinguish between Christ had two natures, uh, which are distinct, um, and um, the human nature and the divine nature. And um, God poured out his wrath upon the human nature of the Son. So um, the, sometimes you might have heard it said that at the cross, the Trinity was broken because the, the Father and the Son were divided from one another. No, they weren't. They weren't. God, God is Trinity. God cannot break. God can't kind of snap himself off a bit. Um, it's God's wrath has been poured about the human nature of His Son, um, but, but God the Father and God the Son are always in, in, in perfect united love. Um, I'm not a systematician, so but, but that's basically the extent of my um, uh, yeah. But let, that's how I'd answer that question. Is that okay? <laughs> yeah. Thank you. So um, uh, James and Rob are observing. Well, hang on. In this text, it looks like it's in by grace, on by grace. Um, Ron being, well done, David, for, for all your heroic deeds. Now um, now um, it's on by grace because of your, because of your heroism. Yeah, I take, I take that point from, from 2 Samuel 7. Again, context is king. And so when, when you see um, all of these sort of royal grant type covenants, the commonality in all of them is that just prior to the cutting of the covenants, you have extraordinary heroic deeds. and, 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 um, and uh, Whereas Noah and his obedience, Abraham and his battle to find armies, Phineas' uh, zeal, and now here, David's victory against the Philistines, the uniting of God's people and bringing the arch to Jerusalem. The context is heroic deeds. And David says, I'm going to build a temple for you, Lord, and I'm going to build a house for you. And God's like, you're not doing me a favor. I'm going to do you a favor. <laughs> um, off the top of my head, I can't think of another place. I'm sure there's another place which says, in response to David's faithfulness, I've done this, that, or the other. Um, I'm going to have to come back to you on that because I can't think of one off the top of my head. But undeniably, that the nature of this covenant is defi- definitely a royal grant. It, it's definitely not um, a suzerain vassal treaty um, because it's not conditional on, on David's ongoing obedience. In fact, quite the opposite. Yeah. Yes. So Andrew's point is, well, hang on. In, in 1 Samuel, the context there, in the immediate context, it doesn't seem like asking for a king is a good thing because um, God seems a bit affronted. Hang on, I'm your king. Why do you want a king? Uh, I'm your king. Um, I, I think with a wider angle, we see that God clearly wants a king for his people because of his promise to Abraham, Genesis 17, kings will come for you. Because of um, Genesis 49, his promise to Judah, a Again, you're a royal tribe, you'll be a king from you. God, God desires a king for his people. The whole of the book of Judges, they had no king, they had no king, they had no king. Any idiot can read the book of Judges and think, what's the solution? A king! I, I think you're right. God, God's people wanting a king like the other nations is an affront to God. Um, because uh, it's, what God's people really need is to be faithful to him. They need, they need to be faithful to him. And then they'd win every battle. They don't need a, a king over them to win in battles. They just need to be faithful to the Lord. But the way in which God's people are going to be faithful, it seems, in his designs, is for God to put over them a king who will lead them in faithfulness. And that's why I, I closed this session on, on talking about how our king mediates every blessing to us. The Christian life is not about you being faithful. It's about you sitting under a king who is and was faithful and is forever faithful. And he then does all the work and you benefit. Isn't that great? That's what the Davidic covenant is about. You benefit because Jesus is a great king. You benefit because you follow a great king. not It's not all about you. Yeah, Brilliant. That's a great question. How does understanding the Davidic covenant help us read the book of Psalms better or more correctly and more accurately? Um, turn me to Psalm 1. Can I give you a case study? Um, if you want to know someone's approach to how they understand how to preach and how to read the book of Psalms, often see how they preach or teach Psalm 1. It's usually a good indicator of how of their methodology. Because lots of people will teach Psalm 1 a bit like this. Um, do you all know Psalm 1? Do you want me to see it? Basically, um Someone, Blessed is the one who does not walk in the step of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or take sit in the company of mockers. But whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do, prospers. Not so the wicked; they are like chaff the wind blows. Therefore, wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. So often you hear a sermon, the preacher saying, okay, so what we need to do, guys, if you want to live the blessed life, read your Bible and sink your roots into God's word, then you'll be blessed. You'll be like that tree. Um, as you meditate on the Lord day and night, you'll be like that tree which sucks up those nutrients. You'll bear fruit for the Lord. You'll be blessed. Um, if you don't do that, you'll be cursed and you'll be blown away in the chaff. So here today, what we should do is go away, read our Bible. End the sermon. Very moralistic. <laughs> and everyone goes we're feeling slightly crushed because this past week they didn't read their Bible very well and they haven't done that and they feel very awful. How does your question, how does understanding the Davidic come and help us read the book of Psalms? It's not about you. <laughs> uh, the Hebrew is a singular. Verse one, blessed is the one, blessed is the man. Well, who is the man? Well, the, the language is Psalm one. It should remind us of Joshua one, where God says to Joshua, You need to obey the law. You need to, well, turn there now. Just, just turn there. Just take, don't take my word for it. Um, chapter 1, verse 8. What does God say to Joshua? Verse 8 Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written on it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. All right. <laughs> So the, the initial language, the first time that language meditate on the Lord day and night, the first time it's used is with Joshua, the leader of God's people, who we've seen mediates the blessing to God's people. Blessed is the man, the one who meditates on the Lord day and night. If you have a Joshua over you, you're, you're going to be blessed because you're in that, you're in that king. Um, and I, I think that's that's a more helpful way of understanding it. Who is who is the well? As I read Psalm one, I think well, I'm I'm more like the wicked here, really. <laughs> but I have a king, who is blessed, and I reckon in him I'm pretty. I'm going to be, be blessed too. In fact, Psalm two, as it goes on, you might know Psalm two. It calls on the kings of the earth, two verse twelve: Kiss the sun. Um, kiss the anointed son, kiss the anointed one, kiss the Messiah, because life is found in him. The Psalms are not about you. Don't individualize them. If you, as best as you can, see Christ in them. How does, this, how does Christ fulfill this Psalm? And then remind yourself, I am in Christ. How now should I live? If I'm grafted into the tree that is Christ, which is beside the river, meditating on the waters, then I should live as he lives. I should meditate on the word day and night. That is not, not what makes me blessed. I'm blessed because I'm grafted into Christ. That's how I'd probably teach it. He is our leader. He mediates all the blessings through us to us. Great, so, I as mean, so soon as observation is well often our, our life does look a bit like judges, and we, we do relapse and we do sort of fall back into sin and we come back to the Lord and we're assured of his love and and, and so on and so forth um, so how, you know how, how, is, how is it that Jesus broke that cycle then I, I think it's fair to say that um, our, whilst our life might look like you know a constant sort of wrestling against sin and the constant battle and go, going going around god's if as long as we're united to Christ. Um, we're, not for, we're not flitting between God's curse and his blessing, <laughs> depending on how well we've done this week, depending on which king we're following that week, depending on what we're making lord of our heart that week. We're not, you know, one week, oh, we're in God's bad books, going to hell if we die that week. And then this week, we've done well in our quiet time. And you know, We're not flitting back and forth like God's people from one generation to the next because of the quality of their judge. That's not us. We are, we are, as long as we're united to Christ, even as sinners, even as people who do, um, fall back into sin we keep coming to Christ so the reason we confess our sins every single Sunday at church is not to sort of flip ourselves back into blessing <laughs> as though this past week we've sort of slowly gone out and we go back in again that's sort of a Roman Catholic view of, of, of confession it's not it's not that it, it, it's we, we do that um, to express our ongoing dependence on God corporately together and our ongoing um, joy in the fact that we know we're blessed because we're in union with him we're on by grace because we are His offspring, and as long as we're in union with Him, we're blessed. So our experience might be of one ongoing sin, now ongoing battle. Um, but we are different to to the, to, to the people of Israel of Israel of those days because we have a blessed leader in whom we're, we're united. Yes, and thank you. So, so Rani's point there is: is um, we should also learn from from the negative examples, the warnings of Scripture. And how, how God treats those who, who disobey him. So Saul and, and what happened to him. And the, uh, perhaps there is a danger in, uh, in that we, we say, oh, we're always blessed because we're united to Christ. And, and we can't, uh, this is what we've seen in the book of Titus too, isn't it? We can't let think that grace means we've got a license just to carry on in sin. We're, we're not free to carry on in sin because we're in grace. Rather, grace motivates us to do good. And, and these stern warnings in scripture, these, these case studies like Saul, they should remind us that God is holy, he's not to be messed with. And We can't use grace as a, as a cheap means just to carry on in sin. If we're doing that, we've not understood grace. Yeah, so that's a really helpful addition. Thank you for that. Shall I pray and we'll close in, uh, in song. Uh, Father God, thank you so much that we have a great king. Thank you that we have one who meditated on the Lord day and night. He was blessed and thank you that we're united to him thank you that we are loved and we're forgiven that we have peace that we have rest that we're united that you live in and among us now so help us to sing your praise and help us to live this week setting apart in our hearts Christ as Lord Amen